0: so we're gonna have a show-and-tell today um, and it's gonna start on this side of the auditorium and stretch to the pulpit last time I used this in fact actually the first time I did this was like three years ago at Ravencrest Chalet Bible School up in Estes Park and uh, I was doing a series a week-long intensive on some book of the Bible and I uh, I think I was in the third hour or so and so I came early and uh, stretched it up like this so that kind of to pique their appetite to wonder what's going to be happening so I got there to the third hour after their first two classes and uh, someone or some group of the kids had taken the rope and it was hanging from a, a hook right above the lectern and they had tied it into a noose <laughs> and I thought well I guess they don't like what I've been sharing I didn't know what was going on so anyway I have taken this down at each service I'm not t- letting this out of my sight uh, you may want to t- turn it into a noose i don 't know we 'll see, but um, not on my watch, but anyway, this will come later. If you turn to the book of revelation, revelation uh, chapter two, we uh, two weeks ago we finished the first two of the seven letters of Jesus Christ to the churches christ letters to the Church at Ephesus, if you remember, and then uh, Smyrna. Uh, over many weeks, we saw these letters uh, how these letters show us the two sides of who he is. Uh, With Ephesus, we saw the sharp two-edged sword that came out of his mouth. It was pretty strong that's the side of truth with Smyrna we saw the side of love of grace with the suffering church where he was like the balm of Gilead and these are fundamental aspects of who he is they come together perfectly in him in uh, any situation as a real uh, example uh, for us grace and truth under it all according to John and John one fourteen, grace and truth were realized uh, in Christ Jesus and so that's why we focused on these two churches and now starting last week we're doing an overview of these two chapters um, before launching into Romans in a few weeks. Last week we started to survey them and we saw that Christ's uh, overall teaching here, the fundamental undergirding teaching really, counters our culture in a big way. It goes against the flow when it comes to a lot of things including our desire for instant gratification it really counters the culture. Now, it's not always good to go against the flow. You've got to be careful when and how you do that. And uh, like the senior citizen, Julie uh, emailed this to me this week, I don't know where she found it, who uh, was driving down I-25. I don't know if you have heard this one yet. Uh, his wife calls him and says, Herman, I just heard the news. There's a car going the wrong way down I-25. Be careful. To which Herman says, Heck, it's not just one car. It's hundreds of them. <laughs> Careful how you go against the flow. So sometimes when you do it with the culture, it can feel like that. Like so much is coming at you, and it can be really hard. Last week, we saw that in these two chapters, through these seven letters to the seven churches, Christ gives a cliff notes version of the Christian life that goes against the flow of standard United States of America Christianity. It counters a culture of instant gratification, where once you come to Christ, it's supposed to be happily ever after. I mean, isn't the life all about the pursuit of happiness? Isn't that what Christianity is supposed to be about? No, it's really the road less traveled. On the other hand, we saw that it is kind of instant gratification because from an eternal perspective, all this is an instant. Two times in these, uh, in these three chapters, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. And then at the end of Revelation, he says in the last chapter, behold, twice again, behold, I am coming quickly. It'll be all over like that. So I guess it is instant gratification. Though it feels like an eternity in the, you know, in an instant. Or it sure can. We saw that according to these two chapters, the Cliff Notes version of the Christian life is that it's a momentary life. Behold, I am coming quickly. It is a momentary life of labor. In his power, for an eternity of treasure uh, in his presence. It's all wrapped up, as we saw, at least a good part of it, and what he ended with uh, each church with, and that is he who overcomes. He who overcomes, that's the summary of the Christian life. That's the labor I will give. In the afterlife, that's the treasure. Last time we focused on our labor. Point A in your notes. This time will be our power, and then for the next two weeks after this will be our treasure. Because there's something that's very important to add, uh, starting with this week, our power, that's very important to add to all this talk about our labor, which is why Christ had John say just about the same thing about this life of labor at the very beginning of Revelation in Revelation uh, 1-7. Just one chapter earlier to tee up the whole book, he talked about the labor there too, but then he added something to it. Christ inspired John to add one more thing, which is the most important of all. And so at the very very beginning of Revelation, Revelation 1-9, as we move from point A in your notes to point B, his power, John characterizes there the Christian life in the same way as Christ did. He did it from the get-go, from the beginning of the books. There'd be no mistake in what we're signing up for. In Revelation 1.9, where he introduced himself as our brother, he says, and fellow partaker. I'm a fellow partaker in something that's going to characterize your life, he says. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker, and just what is that? In the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are going to be in Jesus. What are you signing up for when you become a Christian? I, John... Your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance through it all that are in Jesus, he who overcomes, as Christ went on to say in the chapters two and three. He's summing up the Christian life by saying that if you're really in Jesus, if you're really a Christian, a good part of your life is going to be three things, tribulation, kingdom, perseverance. And the middle word is what John adds to the equation, to this idea of overcoming. Essentially, he adds Christ to the equation. He's saying, here's what's in Jesus. You're going to have to persevere through some tribulation. In many ways, it's going to be a life of labor. But at the heart of it all, amid the tribulation and perseverance, in fact, in the syntax, right in the middle of it, you get the kingdom. Tribulation, kingdom, perseverance which means a lot of things, but the heart of it is that when you become a Christian, it starts with the kingdom within you. As Christ said, you get the king at the heart of it all when you pray to receive Christ into your, into your life. It's a momentary labor from that point on in his power. Or at least it can be. And Christ goes on to reinforce that in chapters two and three, he says the uh, the very same thing. For instance, at the very end of these letters, the letter to the church at Laodicea, uh, once again he saves the most important for last. At, at the very end of this Cliff Notes version uh, of the Christian life, at the end of chapter three, he tells us the source of our kingdom power. It's one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible, and for good reason. And one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come by his side. No, it's better than that. I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. That's the heart of the Christian faith, the kingdom, the king within So we have Christ within us, his power through all we suffer, especially as we dine with him, as he says there, which means as we fellowship with him on a regular basis, he nourishes us and he strengthens us and he gives us the kingdom power to persevere through tribulation. So much packed in here. But there's more when it comes to our inner power. It's like Christ, like we just saying, your kingdom is my home. I'm living in it. Why? I don't walk alone. I have Christ in me. But it's not just Revelation one seven, kingdom, power, perseverance. It's not just Revelation three twenty. I'll be in you. That's what that kingdom means. It's in each and every one of these seven letters. This is so important that he reminds us in them. Because with each one of them, he ends by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Seven times he says that because this is so important. He's talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit here, without whom we'll never understand the truth. He's saying... He's saying, you thought this was me talking to you. <laughs> well, it's also the Spirit talking to him. This is what the Spirit is saying through me to the churches. We're, I and the Spirit are one. These are my words, but also him speaking from the inside out as I speak from the outside in. When I come into you to fellowship with you, he comes too. That, he's how I come into you. And so listen to the Spirit who's in you. And what kind of Spirit is he? Well, in chapter 3, verse 1, in Christ's letter to the church at Sardis, he calls himself, he says, I am the one who has the seven spirits of God. That's who I bring with me. That's how revelation refers to the Holy Spirit. Why the number seven? Well, it's the number of perfection. And we can't unpack it all, can't even begin to. Even We spent years on it. But in this context, what it means is that he is perfect in power. In Revelation 4, throne room of heaven, it says, From the throne of God came lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And what could be more powerful than that? Well, John's description of all this power climaxes in the next sentence. And before the throne, he says, after he talks about lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, before the throne were the seven torches of fire, furnaces of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Whoa. Lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder just set the stage for the torches of fire. We're talking power here. You never get to the bottom of the sevenfold perfection of the Holy Spirit. But the emphasis here is that he is indeed perfect in power. And so not coincidentally, the Spirit is mentioned seven times with each of the seven letters because he's perfect in power. And so Christ is sending us many signals here as to the source of our power. And it stands to reason that he would use this description with Sardis of all the churches because that he's the one who has the seven spirits of God because he goes on to say they're going to need to wake up and you'll need the spirit to do that and strengthen the things that remain, he says. So they needed the one who's perfect in power, sevenfold power. Which is why, of course, it says in Acts 8, it's not just them, it says, you shall receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you it's all through these chapters and there's more yes it's a momentary life of labor but it's in his power now we experience his power in many ways as we start to get the cookies on a lower shelf what does this mean in real life And more often than not, as we've already seen, the stage is set in chapter one for all this. More often than not, it comes through our emptiness, through our brokenness. Just like John was broken, if you remember, at the end of chapter one, as slayed by Christ, the word of his mouth. And then he was empowered by Christ who touched him in his mercy to write this most powerful book in scripture, the book of Revelation. Came through John's weakness. He was an elderly man by then. That's what tees up these seven letters in the chapter just before. Christ's power perfected in John's weakness. And now we're benefiting from that as we look at what he empowered him to write. We have these seven letters because God's power was perfected in John's weakness to write the book that we're now going through. And the same thing happens with us it wasn't just John, we experience power uh, in so many ways. And so often it's through, if you're anything like me, through our emptiness, through our weakness. I mean, it's what it's like to be an interim pastor at the age of 65. In some hugely challenging situations where if God doesn't come through, we're gonna be toast. Or at least so can feel in your flesh when you feel like many things. At the very time when your powers are not what they used to be. (laughs) Now, some people here say, You're just wait. You haven't seen anything yet. But it sure feels that way. It can be terrifying, but it's also exhilarating because power is perfected in weakness. I want to be like Stan Black. How many of you were at his memorial service yesterday? Any of you? What a witness to power perfected till the end of your days. Or the Apostle John who died in the saddle in his elderly years when he was weakest of all and you get presto change out the book of Revelation. I want to be like that as I get to John's age. Some of you are doing that. You're putting yourself out there in your weakness. And I know many of you and you've shared your story and yet you're still out there. It's like we sang, he takes our failure, he takes our weakness, he sets our treasure in jars of clay. So take this heart, Lord, I'll be your vessel, the world to see your life in me, broken jars of clay. So how do you get in touch with that power in your weakness? Let's get the cookies on the lowest shelf with these seven spirits of power that come from him. Well, first, you put yourself out there in your weakness however he's calling you to do it listen to him and do it whether with angel house or house of hope or however wherever and then you just need the presence of mind to call on him in your weakness like paul says john uh, in romans 10 call on the name of the lord And you will be saved. And it's a global view of salvation there, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin through the king within, all through your Christian life, just call on him. It's so simple, but we so easily forget it. And how do you do that? Well, down south, in Houston, where Julie and I lived for 12 years back in the 80s, there's a man who's not well known up here. He's long since passed away. He wasn't even all that well known down there, but I loved his preaching. His name was Floyd Jones. He was a true Texan, West Texan accent and all. He told the story about a time when he called upon the name of the Lord and experienced his power. And today I'd like to tell it just like he did down to the draw because we're going to see that this is a, there's a lesson even in his unpretentious accent that you don't need to be educated for this. As he put it, he heard a knock on the door and there was my neighbor. His veins were distended in his neck and his mouth was wide open shouting at me. It was open so wide I could hardly see my neighbor's eyeballs because my dog dug up his favorite shrub. Now, you know how it is. It's never just an ordinary, crummy, creepy old shrub that your dog digs up. Oh, no, it was the one his grandma sent from Australia. Now, what am I going to do? I could say I can't get mad. I can't lose my patience. Christians are patient, so I better stay patient. I'd like to punch him in the nose, but I'm hanging on for dear life because Christians are wise, and it would not be wise to punch him in the nose. But all that thinking's in the flesh. He said, if that's all you do, so what do you do? Well, you look at those veins on your neighbor's neck, and, and you start praying. Oh Lord, thank you. I used to be just like that. Thank you, Lord, that you've changed my life and I'm not like that anymore. Glory to God. And thank you that he's not hit me yet. <laughs> and thank you that I'm not like that anymore cuz you're the real me and you're near me and you're in me and you're available whenever I call on you. Now, now go to it, Lord. <laughs> And suddenly, my neighbor begins to feel a little ashamed because he hears me say, I'm, I'm sorry my dog's done that. I apologize. Now, now, listen, you just go to any nursery you want. Now, I know I can't possibly replace in any way that special shrub that your grandma sent from Australia, but you go. And you buy anything you want and I'll pay the bill. In fact, when you get back, it'd pleasure me to to help you plant it. And I'll try to do better in the future at keeping my dog off your yard. I'm so sorry. And then he said, you know something? My neighbor and me, we're good friends now. You see, it's even for me. It's for everybody, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whether you're an ignorant seeker or a lifelong follower of Christ. This ain't ain't no sophisticated theology for the professor types. No, it's a down-home doctrine for regular folks like you and me that if you just call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved whether you're in the God-forsaken plains of West Texas or, you know, up here in God's country. (laughs) It's what Major Ian Thomas said. He wrote the book on this. In the saving life of Christ, he said, with what magnificent confidence may you step out into your future When you die to yourself and turn to him and make yourself available as a redeemed sinner to all that God has made available to you in his risen son. The heart of true Christianity because it's the tribulation and the kingdom and most of all the king within and the perseverance which are in Jesus. Which leads us from Point A in your notes, our labor, and point B, our power, to just touch a bit on our future. Because it's a momentary life of labor. Don't put a period after that comma in his power for a future, an eternity of treasure in his presence which is the second part of Christ's teaching here in Revelation 2 and 3 an eternity of treasure in his presence and we'll start unpacking that next time next week we'll unpack all those verses that you'll see in your bulletin uh, uh, under point C in your notes but let me just tee it up this time he's basically saying your overcoming labor in my power is producing somewhat something so much better than anything life has to offer. What you're giving in time, the blood, sweat, and tears, is not worthy to be compared to what you'll be getting in eternity. He who overcomes, I will give. He who overcomes, I will give. And under it all, and through it all, and over it all, Christ is essentially saying this. He's he's asking a question. What are you living for? What are you living for? For time or for eternity? It's like Francis Chan said. How many of how many of you have heard of Francis of, of Francis Chan? He it was in a sermon that he wrote called, in fact, "What are you living for?" You could also title, title it, as we've mentioned before, "Are you putting yourself out there for the sake of the kingdom?" and it goes like this it sums up the application of this Cliff Notes version of the Christian life really it sums up the whole of Revelation imagine this rope and imagine that it literally goes on forever goes out the door up into heaven and stretches on for an eternity okay just imagine and imagine that 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 this is this is the timeline of your existence you just exist forever and you see this like two inch red part, this would represent your time on earth. It's just a couple of inches. You've got a few short years here on earth, and then you've got all eternity somewhere else. And what blows me away is that some people, all they think about is the red part. It's all they think about. They're consumed with this. And it's like, oh man, I can't wait until I'm, I get here to the last part. I'm going to work and work and work and save up and save up and save up until the last quarter of an inch. And then I'm going to live it up. And that's success. And they're consumed with, what they're th- with all that. And they're thinking, I'm going to travel and I'm going to... Eat good food and I'm gonna golf and whatever it is. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? What about that? What about that? Which is us in eternity by the power of the Spirit. Are you going for the gold? It's crazy to me because we're going to see that what I do during this little red part determines how I'm going to exist for millions and millions of years forever. And so why would I spend this little red part trying to make myself as comfortable as possible, enjoying myself as much as it's humanly possible? When Christ says, he who overcomes on earth, I'll give all these things in heaven, he's saying essentially, what are you living for? Are you living your life for the moment when you cross the line and you see me and behold, my reward is with me? I don't know about you, but I want to be like that runner we saw up there last week, looking for the moment when I face God, going for the gold. And no matter how tough it gets, no matter how tired I get, no matter how overwhelming the overcoming battle becomes, I'm going to put myself out there. And so is Julie. That's why we're here. Because we don't get this chance again. We get one chance at this life on earth and it could end at any moment for any of us. We get one chance at this and it's all going to go quickly and then comes eternity. I know it's tempting. I fall back into this as though this is it all on sometimes on a regular basis. It's tempting for all of us to get wrapped up in this. It's the harlot culture of the United States of America where we're all consumers and it's all about what you consume and the the pursuit of happiness and it infects the church. Everyone, even many Christians, are living for the red part. And no one, few people it seems like sometimes, are living for the millions and millions of years afterwards. It's just this crazy deception that comes over us all. And I'm not going to be fooled. Many are, more than they know. You know, They think these are supposed to be the golden years, the last quarter of an inch. When in fact most people don't realize when they're younger that this last quarter of an inch, it's the red zone. <laughs> it may start out golden, but it hardly ever ends that way and it becomes red sooner than you might think. Just talk to some of our seniors. The mercy is that it gets, goes faster with each passing year and I am convinced that is a mercy. Golden years, this is the zone of fire. When all the patterns you set up through the years will come to the test at the end. When more than any other time in your life, it, it can be power perfected in weakness as you choose to get out there in spite of your weakness and remain fruitful. But the day's coming where you're not even going to be able to do that and then it's fire that'll produce an eternal glory when all you can do is overcome by just remaining faithful. That's okay because it's going from red to gold. The glimmer of that spirit up there that's in you now that's soaked with blood, sweat, and tears will become the splendor of the Spirit through you then thanks to those blood, sweat, and tears. When like Christ said in Matthew 13, I love this, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. And when we've been there 10,000 years, we'll be what? Bright shining as the sun. Thanks to this momentary life of labor. It may all be the red zone for you, but praise God because you'll be brighter like that as a result. Thanks to this momentary life of labor in his power for an eternity of treasure in his presence. Father, we do want to thank you for sending Christ to do this for us as he paid the penalty and then through us as he gives us the power to bring us to our future. As we're going to sing now, we thank you that you're the only one who can build our lives to that end as you fill us with your heart and lead us in your love to those around us. We will build our lives on your love, on your power. It's a firm foundation. We will put our trust in you alone. And we will not be shaken. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.